there's something to be said for just being willing to approach our work with the posture of asking, what is it I don't understand about what I do every day? What could be different about it that I might take for granted? Because these are the questions that poets are asking themselves when they sit down in front of their page. And I think it's something that we can all benefit from doing in our day-to-day lives as well. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Tucker Bryant, poet and keynote speaker. What Tucker Bryant learned during a decade spent between Stanford and Google surprised him. Even people on the cutting edge of innovation often struggle to take risks. The truth is that we all want to step out of our comfort zones, but we also have comfort so deep-seated that we aren't aware they even exist. And our instinct to protect that unconscious comfort suffocates our creativity, disengages us from our work, and stunts our ability to lead. As a nationally renowned poet and storyteller, Tucker's experience in Silicon Valley has driven him to pursue an answer to one question. How can we tear down the comfort zones that keep businesses from writing their best poetry? Tucker delivers keynote performances that reveal how the poet's keys enable leaders to overcome our universal barriers to change and unlock the doors to innovations in the area of our businesses that need it most. Tucker's work, which has garnered millions of views online, has been featured at TEDx, The New York Times, and dozens of other organizations across the globe. He has had the privilege of sharing on stages graced by Mark Cuban, Gary Vaynerchuk, Irvin Magic Johnson, and Bill Belichick, as well as founders and executives from scores of Fortune 500 companies. Listen in for some great takeaways about Tucker's journey and how he uses poetry to engage entrepreneurs and have them writing their best happily ever afters. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the amazing pleasure of being with Tucker Bryant, poet and keynote speaker, somebody who I met last year. I'm excited for this conversation. Welcome to the show, Tucker. Hey, it's so good to be with you here, Larry. Hey, thank you for joining us today. What I want to do is give our listeners an idea, a little bit background. So can you give us the 10,000 foot view on how you got to where you are today as a poet and a keynote speaker? A hundred percent. Yeah. So the long and short of it is been writing poetry for the last 10 odd years. But during that time, I've also been working at Google, also been working with Stanford and seeing that a lot of the challenges that folks in the corporate world face as it relates to staying relevant in an environment of increasing complexity and under fierce competition, things like this are challenges that poets are facing every day in order to keep their craft in evolution. And so I try to help leaders unlock innovation, unlock growth by tapping into these behaviors and these tools that poets have relied on for millennia to to keep their craft moving forward. 
Amazing. I kind of find it funny because, or maybe ironic, in, in today's day and age, I don't think you hear very often that people describe themselves as a poet. I think it's a lost art form, not something people really have top of mind that they're thinking about. How did you come to the decision that you were going to brand yourself or identify yourself in this way? And it's such a thoughtful question. And brings me to something that someone I was talking to recently said about identity, which is that it's not just who we see ourselves as, it's the intersection of who we see ourselves as and who the world sees us as. And so to get to your question more specifically, on paper, I started writing poetry 10 years ago when I was transitioning into college and sort of figuring out a lot of my own personal life stuff that I hadn't really taken much time to figure out. So it was a tool for me to kind of work through feelings that I hadn't hadn't faced or hadn't dealt with. But then in reality, it's a label that I only really inherited when people started seeing me that way. As I'm sure is the case with you, there are thousands of labels that I might be comfortable putting on myself, but I recognize that some of the value that people might seek to get or be able to get from what I'm putting into the world happens to be, to be aligned with what I'm trying to do with poetry. And so it's this sort of marriage of what I'm actually doing, but also of, of what people see me as that led to me taking on that label. So the question is, did you see yourself as that first or did other people kind of label you that and you were like, hey, I'm going to own this thing? I think it was definitely the latter. Who who goes out there and just proclaims to the world, hey, everybody, I'm a poet and you've got to believe like, I don't know. I thought you might be one of the first, maybe. I don't know. True. I'm sure there's some folks out there. I don't have that level of confidence. I definitely think it took a long time of having written these very sloppy words on a page and, and trying to share them on stages before I was willing to say, I guess this is what I am if you see me that way. So I think it definitely came from outside first. Yeah. So, I mean, you talk about words just a moment ago, right? And something I know from listening to you that you're so passionate about are words can be so powerful right? Why is it that you think they can be so powerful? Yeah, I love this question. Um, I'll answer it at a couple of levels. The first level is that in my mind, words are kind of like seeds. Lots of people that I speak to about poetry are like, I'm not a big fan of poetry. But if you dig a little deeper, they're like, well, there is this one poem that I'm a fan of. And oftentimes they know the poem like verbatim. And it's such an incredible thing to me to think that there are these instances of words being used in ways that are so evocative or so musical or so vivid that even somebody who doesn't like poetry might be powerless but to carry that line with them for years and years and to think that a line or a phrase or a poem could be doing work on the background of someone's identity in life without them realizing is, I think, a hugely important thing to us as people and I think that's meaningful to me. And so I think poetry is beyond just what happens on a page. And I love the potential that words offer us to kind of plant those seeds in people's minds. But to answer your question at a different level, I think having a, a poet's mindset is more than just what you do with words. And that's kind of what I try to share with folks who, who I work with. I work with 84-ish percent of businesses that are under pressure to innovate and to avoid fading into obsolescence behind the things we just talked about, things like industry complexity, rising user demands, fierce competition, things like this. Folks who don't realize or haven't realized their potential to tap into their abilities to drive positive change for their organizations. And so for the reasons that we talked about a second ago, 
having spent time in Silicon Valley, but also being a poet, I'm realizing that there are these ways that professionals can think that poets are thinking every day that can help them unlock growth in whatever area they're trying to make traction on. And so I think thinking like a poet and to your point, to your question about why words are so powerful, there's something to be said for just being willing to approach our work with the posture of asking, what is it I don't understand about what I do every day? What could be different about it that I might take for granted? Because these are the questions that poets are asking themselves when they sit down in front of their page. And I think it's something that we can all benefit from doing in our day-to-day lives as well. To your point on the first part of your answer, right? I think that poetry very much like when you were talking about what poetry does for people, how they remember it, how it impacts them. I find it very similar and aligned to music, for example, right? Sometimes I can't remember what I did yesterday or a week ago, but I can remember words from a song that I first heard 30 something years ago, like it was yesterday. So there was definitely some kind of impact. And I would imagine the way music kind of impacts people, poetry can have a similar effect as well. I think definitely. And I'm glad you brought up music because that's like my other big, big, big passion. I don't know what you're listening to these days for the last few decades, but I'm a huge heavy metal fan. Pantera is like, they're my, uh, my guiding light. Okay. I can totally relate to this impact that art in general leaves on people in this mysterious way that I think we can really leverage for good. Yeah. So at what point and what was your motivation for aligning the environment of words and how poetry affects people and inspires them to now translate it over to the business world and say, hey, we can use these words to inspire our stakeholders. We can use these words to inspire them to do better and work harder and be more productive. Where did that correlation and where did that line up for you? So the way that it started while I was at Google, I had like kind of buried my poetry past while I was there because I, I spent all these years in college writing flowery words about Jasmine tea while my friends were pursuing internships at JP Morgan and Facebook and whatever. And I just felt kind of ashamed of that. And so I tried to bury it. But while I was at Google, I guess at some point, a couple of my coworkers had dug up that past that I had. It ended up getting around to a small number of people and a couple of them asked if I'd be down to present and to perform at a couple of team events. But a couple of these folks, they wanted more than just a poem. They wanted like, oh, we're talking about mental health and we're talking about creativity. I wonder if there might be something you'd be willing to share that is centered around that. And so it led me to start to sort of kind of draw these connections And what I noticed is that as a speaker, I see incredible people who have deep expertise in their fields, everything that's academic, everything that's business centric. But I think there's something that is uniquely helpful about bringing people who have outsiders perspectives into these spaces to kind of challenge us to rethink things in ways that are unique to the world that we've come from. And so I could never do what a VP of sales has done. I can never do what you do. And I admire that. But I think there's something about being willing to own the unique perspectives that we have and the unique experience that we have and, and see if somebody else might be able to find something in that, that kind of uh, appeal to me and thinking about ways to help corporate audiences. 
it seems to me like there's some level of stepping out of your comfort zone when you talk about poetry and you start talking about it. And quite frankly, I may have even told you this when we initially met, when I heard you go on stage or heard that you were a speaker at Excel, I was a little like, huh, has poetry, how is this going to all integrate to a conversation about the wealth management profession where the audience is going to be predominantly, if not everybody's going to be a financial advisor. And I'll tell you, I was blown away. There was a lot of relevancy. It it really did impact me. So what advice do you have for those who similarly, because I think that's what you're trying to kind of inspire by your words, is you really want to inspire action for those to grow and step outside of their comfort zone. So what advice do you have for folks to be able to and be in a position to do that? First and foremost, understand what your comfort zone is, right? Something that I I really appreciate about having the opportunity to write poetry is that in doing this on a daily basis or a consistent basis, you're kind of forced to discover what your creative blind spots are because you'll find out over time what comforts you tend towards. And so having this energy to seek out and name what the comfort is that we rely on, I think is the first step to stepping outside of it. You know, is it that you have tunnel vision where you're over reliant on your routine? Is it that you love traditional thinking and are unwilling to imagine bold change? Are you a perfectionist and unwilling to make mistakes? Are you selfish and have a difficult time serving or connecting to other people? Or are you performative in your professional identity? And are you unwilling to be vulnerable and real at the risk of kind of showing folks parts of yourselves that are difficult to face? And so figuring out which of those five or which other comforts, which unsurprisingly are the ones that I picked that both align to, I think, professionals as well as to poets is i think the clearest way we can start to make an active effort to move beyond them now were you somebody who before you started stepping on these big stages as a keynote speaker and a poet was that something you yourself felt anxiety about that you needed to kind of get past yourself before it still happens larry it happens (laughs) to the day it happened before i hopped on this no i feel very comfortable around you so i didn't feel nervous getting on this call but it does happen all the time. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what have you done? What have you found for yourself to turn your anxiety around, like stepping onto a stage and turn it into a mindset of that those emotions are coming from a place that you're really just vested in the process? I believe you speak about that heavily, that you're having these anxieties because you're really vested in what you're doing. So can you speak to that about how those two things correlate? And then to your own personal experience, how do you get past that and kill it on stage like you do? Absolutely. And I think you just put it so well. I think it really comes down to reframing the goal. Like there are so many emotions we deal with on a regular basis, whether it's getting on stage literally or getting on a figurative stage that we think are bad because they are uncomfortable, right? The anxiety, the stress, et cetera. A mentor of mine, Cassandra Worthy, talks about this a lot in her work on change enthusiasm. But I think reframing the goal such that we're not trying to eliminate those emotions, but we recognize what they're doing for us. When I'm anxious, you started to speak to this before I get on stage, it's because I care about doing well. And why would I not want to be in a space where I have the opportunity to leave an impact on folks 
to the extent that I feel the stakes and I feel the desire to do right by my audience. And the thing that I think we, we often forget, and this is maybe very relevant to folks who step on literal stages, but also probably relevant in other spaces too, is that your audience wants you to succeed. I think part of the anxiety is like forgetting that everyone in the space that you're collaborating in is vested in the success of the thing that you're doing. And so both recognizing that anxiety is not a sign that something's going wrong. It's a sign that you are in front of an opportunity to do well. And then also remembering that everybody wants to look for opportunities or reasons to say that this thing was good or effective really helps us realize that being on stage in these moments is not something that should or has to happen with a perfect state of calm. Yeah, I mean, listen, I guess to your point, right? If you weren't interested, if you weren't really driven by being successful on stage and driving points home, you wouldn't care. So what's there to be nervous about, right, at that point? And I think also, I think to your point as well, there doesn't have to be a literal stage. We're all put on stage in various different ways throughout our life, whether it's just interactions, conversations. And it's important that we understand how to manage that concern that we have in a way that's beneficial, that's going to help us and not hinder us. I think that's really what the end game is. Well framed. I totally agree with you. I mean, do you think a big component of this, and this may be a little bit off topic, but do you think part of this comes from the whole participation trophy, kind of everybody's going to participate, everybody's going to do well? Do you think there's also some anxiety from that kind of framework that we've created, that we've created this environment where especially young people, we're not really encouraging them to go out on a limb in many cases. We're we're almost trying to get them to be like everybody else instead of being their own authentic self and getting to deal with that anxiety. So later in life, when they are on the real stage in front of a bigger group, it's harder for them to manage those expectations or those emotions. I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I think that's a really interesting idea that resonates with me. And I, I'll build on that by saying that it's really easy in the universe where whether you're a young person or an entrepreneur or professional, the work that we do is often so visible that I think it's really easy to forget that the sharing of the work is not necessarily the work. But people conflate those two things to the point that we optimize for clicks, we optimize for attention and for the validation that comes in these ways, which I think is something that's not new, right? We all know that this is a pressure that we have, but I think what we forget is that when we don't take the time to step away from those arenas and figure out what it is that we actually truly think about the things that we are contributing to or offering our, our opinions on every day, week, year, whatever, we do sort of converge in the middle. All of our perspectives end up being more similar than they should. In doing that, we're forgetting that there is a perspective that we alone can contribute to the conversation. And that's what our sort of our unique selling point is. Our I don't know, selling point is lower people that are being sold, but that's what our unique contribution can be to the conversations that we're stepping into. And I think finding opportunities to reflect in private such that we nurture those perspectives is essential not just for our audience, but also for our own sense of finding our place in the worlds that we're stepping into. And so 
I love the way you phrase that. And I, I totally agree. Great, great points as well from you and a lot of great takeaways here. So let's talk about growth for a minute. One of the things that I've heard you talk about and I can see really is relevant to a business and their stakeholders could be relevant to a high schooler who's looking to make a presentation is this idea that you can only practice so much, right? Practice is good. But a lot of learning and growth comes from doing, right? And I hate the word, and I've heard people, you know, practice makes perfect. There is no perfect. It's practice makes permanent. But at some Mm -hmm. point, you actually got to do it in order to get that growth. So what advice do you have for those who may be held back by fear? And what they're finding themselves doing is practicing a lot instead of doing. This is great. My answer to this would build on an earlier conversation we were having after identifying what your fears are and what those comforts are, whether it's one of the five that we talked about or another set, I think there are some active things that we can do to start moving from the the understanding or the insight or the practicing phase into the doing phase. And so if you're hampered by tunnel vision, I'd say create space to step back from your routine and start to actually think through and put into practice new ways of relating to the work that you do every day. If you're a traditional thinker, challenge yourself to prove an assumption that you have about your space wrong. That'll force you to think outside of the traditions that you've been dependent on. If you're a perfectionist, give yourself constraints, a project with constraints that forces you to say, I no longer am able to boil the ocean, but I will be more easily able to take a single step if a couple of constraints are in here that that make it easier for me to move towards a goal with a true action. If you're a person that thinks more about yourself or are ruthless in your own pursuit of your goals, try having a conversation with someone in which you actively try to understand what they're thinking and feeling through a set of questions that you can ask them about how they're feeling, what their needs are, and, and what they'd like to get out of the current stage of life they're in or whatever it is. If you are a person that tends to be more performative, Take some time to reflect. This can be something that we can do in private that can impact how we show up in our public spaces. If you ask yourself what your true opinions are about things that you haven't been able to give an opinion on in a truly uninfluenced way, these actions we take in private do impact the way that we show up in public. And so those are five ideas. But I think the meta point here is that Doing doesn't have to just be doing in public. You can also be taking true steps towards your goals or what you're looking to try to achieve in private. That still puts us towards what we're trying to do in public as long as, as you said, we're not simply practicing or thinking. We're we're doing the doing somewhere. So those are five ways that you could start on that path depending on what your challenges are. Great, great points. And thank you for sharing that. One of the things I know we you've talked about before is you've used some of what people would view as flaws in your life to create your own narrative. Perhaps you can share how you've done that. I think it would be very telling for people because not anybody really has this 
clean background where everything was rosy their entire life. Typically, you look at any entrepreneur, there's some event in their life that has led them down the path of being an entrepreneur and their level of success. And I'm not saying that's in every case, but a lot of cases, and there have been studies to report that. So not everybody has this snow white level background. And I think that that's important because it doesn't mean that you can't create a narrative around that that influences and impacts people in a very positive way. So I know you've done that. So can you share a little bit how you've done that and how others may be able to do the same thing like you have? Totally. I try not to quote too often, but there is a quote that actually I don't know the verbatim words of, so I'm actually not even doing it its justice here. But there's a quote that I I really like that's by Steve Jobs, as far as I'm aware, in which he says something to the effect of, we can only connect the dots in our story looking backwards. I think there's often a temptation we have if we are at a certain point in our lives, careers, whatever, to try to look at where we want to go and, and build the narrative in that direction. And I'm sure for some folks that's doable, but I found a lot more useful to look back at the experiences that I've had, the ones that have been difficult, the ones that have been painful, the ones on which I've messed up, and look for the common thread that might explain why I am where I am today or why I'm doing the things that I'm doing today. I would suggest to folks to kind of do something similar there, right? Like instead of looking at where you want to go, which you will be able to make traction towards, but will be more difficult to if you're looking in that direction turn back on your experiences, have some understanding of where you are right now, and then ask yourself, what are the ingredients to this meal, this dish that I am today? And I think once you have that clarity, you can then think of ways to frame the the common threads that you found in these experiences that you've had over the last 5, 10, 15, 20 years, and ask yourself, what do I have to offer to folks based on these experiences? What do I believe? What do I care about? And what do I have a perspective on that I know is a perspective that is uniquely mine? And I think once you've had that sort of clarity, it becomes a lot more easy to figure out how you'd position your experiences, your insight, your perspectives towards your audience in a way that that folks would benefit from, even if only by way of putting an idea in front of them that they had never seen before. I think that's great stuff. And I guess to some degree, I've already followed that. And I share the story all the time. But I also put it in my book that we released this year, Financial Planning Made Personal. I talk about my experience of being 12 or 13 years old, my mom being diagnosed with cancer, her passing away the day after my 23rd birthday, she was at the age of 47. And also losing my brother-in-law at a very early age, he died at the age of 27. That impacted me, impacted my life. I really understood how important life was, that we weren't all granted this life till we're 70, 80, or 90. And in terms of my mom, it really impacted the profession I'm in, because I saw the experiences of my dad not having a financial advisor, and it was something something that I felt really could be a rewarding career for me. So if people want to see the whole story, they can read it in the book. But I think to your point, having those experiences and sharing with people, I think is very telling. It gives them an understanding of where your passion comes, why you're so interested in helping them be successful and do whatever they want to do. And it gives you that why that you could share with either your coworkers, your family, really can share it with anybody. It's endless to that degree. 
hundred percent. Yeah, I love just to add really briefly on that. It's recognizing that you already have had experiences that have been influencing your behavior in some way. And looking for those, I think, can be clarifying as opposed to trying to create some sort of meaning or value out of things that you haven't done yet or haven't been doing. Inspiring like you've been to be in living because of the experiences you've had. And the most authentic way to sort of figure out what the narrative is, is to figure out, okay, how have the experiences I've had led me in the direction that I have? And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done and, and something that I think that all your listeners, I'm sure, would benefit from as well. Agreed. Agreed. So you've mentioned using your phone to jot down notes at various times of the day. What's the reasoning behind that? And how do you think people can start to listen more of the world around them? Man, you've got such an incredible memory. There are a couple of things you brought up in this conversation. I'm like, dang, this guy really remembers <laughs> those. I wish I had that kind of, I don't even have that kind of memory. Yeah. So I do really love taking notes during the day when I, if like a line pops into my head or if I see something that, you know, like there's some nice trees out in the street and I'm, I'm always looking at them when I'm, when I'm in calls. And sometimes the way the wind will catch them is kind of, I'm going to sound like a loser if I go any farther into the poetry stuff. But the reason why I do it. I don't think so. Okay. I appreciate that. (laughs) I'll make it sound not too lame to your listeners. That's like when I go on a financial tangents, I'll sound like a loser, but that's what we do. So that's, we're not losers. People need us. Far less debt with your financial knowledge (laughs) than the average poet has. And so I, I admire that. The benefit of doing something like this, which I do and might not be, the thing that I would necessarily specifically advise for others is that when we are in the trenches of our work or our day, it becomes really difficult to step back from and notice broad or small things happening in that routine that we rely on. And so I really recommend folks taking moments to pause. They could be during our day Or they could be at the end of a cycle of a routine, at the end of a week or a month. But time to intentionally break routine in order to make these sorts of observations that ensure that we're not simply just deepening our river of thinking, as Edward de Bono would say. If you're the kind of person who knows that you clock in at this time, you do these tasks, and then you clock out and you do that every day, unless you're actively looking for little spaces in which you can do things that are not related to your task for the day, your goal for the day, it's going to be really hard for you to have a different perspective on those goals. And for me, that's kind of how I try to build my body of work as it relates to poetry. And so I really advocate for folks just looking for opportunities to create that white space so that there is some bird's eye view you're developing about the things that you're doing for 80% of your time And once the insight of the epiphany happens, it'll be a lot easier for you to decide, how do I want to shift this thing? Yeah, great stuff. Thank you for that. So now, a very important piece of our show today, and I've seen you do this before. I've witnessed the magic. I'm hoping that you can grace us with a unique poem today and share your wisdom and magic with our listeners. Absolutely. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to. And before we hopped on, I was kind of deciding between two poems to share and it was going to be a game time decision. I'm going to go with the unexpected route. So I hope that your audience liked this one. This is called Facts About Myself. I'm 29 years old. I'm right-handed. I hate my middle name. I don't eat goat's cheese. 
I'm a terrible driver, and for as long as I can remember, I've always had this insatiable hunger for good ramen and bad puns. I believe there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who admit they've ever peed in the shower and liars. I'm the son of a man who never misses a home-cooked meal or skips his dishwashing duties. The son of a woman who told me that my name is an earthquake in waiting. She said, hold it in your mouth like the most dangerous secret this world has yet to know. I'm only five foot eight on a really good day. But being built like a short story is a lesson in finding other ways to be the tallest tale in the room. I don't know what it means to be a man, and for a while I thought the weight room could tell me. But I've heard stories of men with shotgun barrels for arms, who use their bodies as weapons. I've seen them shoot their mouths off and leave bullet holes in women's spirits. And my sisters say that they raised me to be a good guy, but I have a set of knuckles swollen with the memory of teeth and blood, and I'm still learning to unlearn my own violence. I'm reminded every day that people carry an obsession with property in our blood. That when I was a kid, I used to shoplift things I didn't need or want just to feel like there was something in this world that I could own. I know the most beautiful thing about love is that it cannot be owned. There are some days I'm still the 13-year-old whose stomach origami folds on itself every time Laura Stevenson walks past his lunch table. And I don't watch much TV these days, but I'm still a Nickelodeon kid at heart. So if you ask me who loves orange soda, I'm going to tell you. I've broken way more promises than bones in my life, and I'm still not sure which has been more painful to heal. I have a heart the same size as a fist, and I didn't find self-love until I gave myself a beating. But I was the tree that fell in the forest when no one else was looking and dared to make a sound. I am the meal that this thing called depression has spent decades trying to devour from the inside out. I am also living proof that that fool bit off more than he could chew. I believe there is nothing more autobiographical than a scar. So every time I see the remains of the barcodes I've carved into my skin, I read the story of a battle I win every day. I used to wake up breathless with anxiety that felt deadly, but now I'm so sick, I've got depression scared to catch me. I am both Brit and boy, which means that I am the knife that threatens to slit the neck of silence and make everything bleed song. I am song. I know nothing can die that can't be resurrected by music and that the dance floor is the safest place to be during the apocalypse. I know all of this, but I'm still figuring out how to hold on to this helium balloon called happiness. I've got charisma down to a science, but most days I still have less confidence than English weather. But I'm learning every day what it means to be human without yet being whole. You know, every night the sky opens its mouth and swallows the sun in a single gulp just to make room for the moon. But what a wonderful way to live life. Be so full of so much light, but always hungry for more. Amazing. That was, that was amazing. There was a lot to unpack there. Well, I'm going to have to, me personally, I'm going to have to listen to this again and again to get it all, but brilliant. Loved it. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate you giving me the opportunity. So let's move on. We have to ask the last question we ask every guest, because this is the Midland Money Mindset. We have to always end on a joyful note. So the question is, what did you do today? that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success. As lame as this is, I made my bed. It felt really good making my bed today. And it feels good making my bed every day. I know there's some folks out there who agree with this. Starting your day off with a really small win kind of helps other things fall into place sometimes. 
I will tell you this, there's nothing lame about that. I would have to, and I have no statistics to confirm this, but I would have to imagine that's probably one of our top three, maybe definitely top five, maybe top three answers by our guests. That is a winner for sure that for the same reasons that you stated, people like starting off with that small win every day, every morning, and it gets them off on the right track. So I think you're onto something. Oh man, that's so comforting. I was like, are people going to hear this and think that I'm some unwashed caveman? But to know that your other very successful guests have said the same makes me feel a little more at home. Yeah. Amazing stuff. So listen, Tucker, we're going to have all your information in the show notes. We're going to have that available. But if people want to learn more about you, learn more about your speaking, your poetry, what's easiest and the best place for them to go do that? Absolutely. So two things I mentioned. One, my website is TuckerBryantSpeaks.com. You can check me out there or connect with me on LinkedIn. You can search my name, Tucker Bryant, or go LinkedIn.com slash in slash Tucker Bryant, which is more complicated. So just search my name. And uh, I would love to connect to anybody who wants to talk about creativity, innovation, poetry, whatever. There you go. And listen, take a look at his website. I will tell you this from my own personal experience. If you have him come talk to your organization, your stakeholders, whatever it would be, it is an amazing experience and it will make them better people and it will make your organization a better place. So thank you so much, Tucker, for taking out the time to join us. I really appreciate it and make it a great day. Appreciate you, Larry. It's such a pleasure to talk to you always. I'm looking forward to the next conversation we'll have. I want to thank Tucker Bryant for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Tucker and I met about a year ago at a conference where he wowed me with his poetry and the way he had me thinking about my business. The impact he has on businesses is amazing. They just need to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. I highly recommend you take a look at what he has to offer as it has changed the way I do things for the better. Tucker is a great person and someone I am happy to call a friend. His impact on the world is incredible. Tucker Bryant and everything he is involved in can be found across most social media platforms. All the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.